This episode is sponsored by the one membership by Template Monster. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the HTML All the Things podcast episode 77. What makes, almost said what mics, what mics, <laughs> what makes web development hard? Uh, I'm your host, Matt Lawrence, and I'm joined again by my co-host, Mike Coran. If you've been enjoying the podcast so far and you want to support us, there's a couple of ways that you can do that. You can go to that Apple podcast or whatever platform you're listening to this on and leave a review. Uh, that would really help us out as well as if you come and check out our Patreon. We only have a couple of tiers, but that $3 tier will give us give you a shout out on the show and we will share a link to a website of your choosing or your website, hopefully, uh, in our show notes. And probably the most important one is just to tell your friends or anyone else that you know that's interested in web development that we're here and ready to be listened to. And if you or your friends are ready to go a step further, you can also hang out with us in our Discord server, which is well over 300 members now. We're constantly chatting in there about WordPress and PHP and... Well, actually, I don't know if anyone's talked about PHP in a while, but a whole bunch of web development stuff. So come and check that out. That will uh, The link to that will also be in our show notes. But Mike, Weekly Pain Point, please take it away. All right. And I think people are talking about PHP. PHP oh. is still, still a relevant language, Matt. Don't be knocking on PHP. No, I mean, like, specifically in our Discord server. Like, I don't want a bunch, I don't want, like, a bunch of people to join for PHP that all need help, but also can't offer help. We have, we have like... some pretty good PHP developers in there. I'll tell you that right now. We also have some Python developers in there. So it's not just, I mean, it's not just JavaScript, is what I'm trying to say. There's oh, plen- yeah. There's, there's plenty a bunch of other there. languages that people talk about. We talk about UX cool. in there a little bit now, too. Yep. UX and. All that stuff, backend, frontend, everyone tries to help each other join up. Um, but with that being said, let's go to my weekly pain point, which is not enough RAM. Uh, I think I've talked about this lately on the podcast, but I actually upgraded my computer to 32 gigs of RAM. And it's finally able to keep up when I open up like, you know, a few emulators, uh, a bunch of tabs. I'm a, I'm a tab heavy kind of guy. You crazy right. son of a bitch. Yeah, like I have I have a lot of tabs open. Now, I, I use a program called Tab Suspender, which after inactivity will suspend the tab and take it out of memory. Because if I didn't use that, I would, like, I would probably need like 64 or 128 gigs of RAM, but that's a future upgrade for me. Uh, on the other side of it is building applications that have Flutter inside of them and iOS and like Cordova, all that stuff, apparently that takes up a lot of RAM. <laughs> and I, I recently came into a situation where a laptop with four gigs of RAM had to like literally have everything closed for it to build an application. So it goes to show you that four gigabytes of RAM is just not enough these days to do uh, development. That's almost like netbook level. Like the netbooks were kind of at two gig, but the 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 four gig is the new two gig, I'd say. Yeah, exactly. Uh, well, my weekly pain point, if you haven't noticed already, is that I'm, uh, I have death at my door. I'm dying currently. My lungs are filled with fluid. And so if I'm talking slowly and monotone and taking very deep breaths, it's because I can hardly breathe. So that's good. It's been a few days. I also spent two days, uh, not sleeping. So I had a really high fever and I was just, I would literally lay down in bed, not sleep, and then just get out of bed eight hours later. And I did that twice. And then I had a really bad fever one day in the middle of the night, or in the middle of, like, the evening period, and started talking to my one friend while we were playing a video game about giraffes, and he was like, what the fuck are you talking about? And I was like, oh, I, I gotta lay down, and that's what I went and did. So I'm, I'm pretty sick, pretty ill, this might be my last podcast, I'll be found dead tomorrow morning. That's terrible. Found, That's found a terrible dead. thing to say. F- no, found you're dead, not gonna be no one. I'm gonna be found. No dead. one panic because you're gonna get people like trying to find you and revive you on the podcast. There's people that care about you on this podcast, Matt. You're gonna, you'll see. On yeah. uh, on our, um, I, I'm on the edge of this podcast. God knows, God knows how that's gonna get done if I'm dead in the morning. But uh, what the hell was I gonna say? Oh, in our on my other podcast, my gaming podcast. We actually have a thing where if someone isn't there for some reason, if they're absent, we say that somebody killed them, and it's usually me. And so usually it's like, oh, I just ran Adriana over like three times with my car. That's why he couldn't show up. And that's then a one, dangerous. That's a dangerous precedent to set because if if someone one, does it, run them over with the car, oh, yeah. you'll be suspect number one. Suspect number one, and now there's several hundred episodes. <laughs> 
uh, where you running people over with cars, running Damn. people over, shooting them, poisoning them at some point. Uh, you Lord. know, ver- variety a variety of hitman level uh, kills. So a, jur- a jury would convict. A jury would convict, <laughs> and then but then, but then you can tune in to making a Matt Lawrence a Netflix film in using a few, my year, old and a few years after it. Oh, using yeah, okay, so. Real brief, Mike had this webcam, so I, this was during the, the heat of the, this was during the heat of uh, Making a Murderer, like, Netflix kind of caught on fire at that point, they were really killing it with their originals, and Making a Murderer just came out, and I had just watched it, and Mike brought out this webcam that he got, and he said it was cheap, and it literally was like, orange, white balance, extremely blurry, and it looked like an old 90s photo, but live, like it was moving, because obviously it was a webcam, <laughs> and I was literally, I literally said, like, what we need to do is we need to be like, making a Matt Lawrence and use this to shoot the intro and have the same, <laughs> like have like some eerie music in the back. It's crazy. It's crazy, yeah, man. It was, it was a good, like 120 pixels on the screen, kind of making an image with a few colors. Fucking fan. It'd be literally like, as if we were testing out like the webcam, like web API or whatever. And just like, just the very first time, like the very first time we were like, Oh, we got like the image to show up. It feels like that's, that's what they made. And they're like, all right, ship it. <laughs> Yeah. So all you need to do is throw a little bit of dirt in that lens, and then you get like, and then you can say it has like p- patina on that on that film. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, Matt, I have gotten rid of that webcam. That's really since. sad, actually. Yeah, it is kind of sad. I kind of wish I kept it now, but like, I can't keep everything that I have. Too you can't much keep stuff. you're making a you making a Matt Lawrence cam exactly. And then if that ever implicates you again, then I'd feel bad. It's You'd pretty horrible. In prison, in prison for saying that you killed someone a hundred two hundred and seventy times on an episode. That's all right. You can you can visit me by watching my episode on the confession tapes. Um, all right. Well, anyway, that was a that was a weird weird weekly pain point. So, Mike, please take it away so I can breathe a little bit here. Okay. Uh, so let's get right into it. Um, I'm going to start with what's what I find difficult about web development. Like, what's hard? Like, what? Why is web development sometimes just such a pain? that we just don't want to do it anymore and that there's multiple different things. And I'm, I'm sure that the people that have been around it for a while can definitely relate to a lot of these and the people that haven't been around, I just want to preface this a little bit with the fact that it's not like, it's not the worst thing in the world. Obviously I'm just, I just want to point out some of the difficult points to make sure that people are aware of them before, if, if they're currently in the industry or they're currently looking to get in the industry, just know about the, the fact that you might run into some issues during this, during these points and there's definitely ways around them and you can solve these things. So first things here is screen sizes. So when you're building a UI, a lot of the times, if it's for like a Android app or an iOS app, you have only a certain amount of screen sizes. Still a lot, obviously, because you got tablets and phones, but it's not infinite. With a, with a, phone, with a website on the computer... You literally have to adapt for any screen size because you don't know what people are going to be viewing your your site at. Are they going to be viewing it full screen? Are they going to be viewing it like, you know, half screen, a quarter screen? You, you don't know. And your UX has to be implemented and UI has to adapt uh, to accommodate for literally every method that you can possibly do. And you're never, you're probably never going to be able to accommodate unless you're like a massive corporation and have millions of dollars uh, to every single possible uh you know, screen variation and, you know, window size, but you have to kind of put your foot forward and do your best. And that can be a pretty difficult to design something that can be like a original look or look original, work really well, easy to build and able to work on any screen size. So a lot of the times you're going to end up in a situation where you're kind of reusing the same design techniques, like, you know, a lot of sites have a lot of boxes in a row and then a bunch of a bunch of columns like boxes and columns because it's really easy to adapt that to any screen size so you the, the as the smaller you shrink your screen the less boxes in your rows the more columns you have the more scrolling you have stuff like that is kind of how we adapt to it and then the more you look around the web the more you notice that you know all the news websites all the blog websites all like YouTube any website usually has that kind of structure um that's a really common one. But if you think about it, if, if screen sizes were more rigid, we could do a lot more fancy and original stuff that might not rely on just having boxes and rows and columns. We might be able to do like maybe different designs for like laying stuff out on angles, stuff like that, that we 
we can do right now, but it's difficult because of the fact that you just have infinite amounts of different sizes that you have to account for. One of the things that we do to sort of mitigate this is we kind of choose a minimum screen size. So right now we kind of test down to iPhone 5, and the way we look at it is the iPhone 5 is no longer supported by Apple anyway, and it's a really small size. So if someone has something even smaller, so it's like you know previous to the iPhone 5, chances are they have an older non you know non modern equipped browser anyway and we just don't really accommodate to that screen size very much we will obviously not take liberties to like specifically break smaller screen sizes but there comes a point where it's like man i can't make this image any smaller like this looks stupid like when it starts looking bad because of the amount of screen real estate there it's just kind of time to start pulling the plug a little bit and that's kind of where we that was our sweet spot is iPhone 5. And ever since we did that, we've never had any complaints about people saying, hey, this looks bad on my screen. Because we have had people from all all walks of technology, whether they have an old phone, new phone, old computer, new computer, Windows XP, whatever. And with that size, we're, we're pretty safe. We've never had a complaint. Yeah, absolutely. And and again, like with, with any of these points that I'm going to be talking about, there's always ways to mitigate. There's always ways to round it. Um, that's what, that's what I want to point out is like, although this is sometimes difficult, it's definitely something that you can overcome. And web development is definitely an industry that's awesome to be in. If you have that kind of mentality that you, you want to overcome issues and stuff like that. So that was a good point, Matt. Um, on that note, let's move on to the next one here, which is multiple different browsers and different browser engines. So right now we have to deal with, um, Internet Explorer, on the lesser case, like we don't have to deal with it very often anymore, but still, it's still around and it's still pretty popular if you look at the percentage-wise. Um, we have to deal with Edge, which is now being phased out into Edge Chromium, which is kind of a good thing, and I'll get back to that in a second. We have to deal with the Firefox engine. Uh, I can't remember what it's called, actually. There is a name for the Firefox engine. And then we obviously have to deal with Chromium. And on top of that, we have to deal with Safari. Now, Safari is an interesting one because not only does Safari have a desktop side, it has a mobile one and those two although similar have little intricacies that don't some don't support this thing some support this thing so you have to kind of accommodate for both and in that perspective there's also opera on on mobile i don't remember if that's chromium now or not i I believe opera is still its own engine uh, but i could be wrong they could have switched to chromium so regardless there's multiple different engines and what that means is that there's certain things in let's say javascript or layouts that aren't supported across every single engine and that also means that when someone wants to bring a change into the infrastructure, into JavaScript, CSS, or HTML, they have issues with it because they have to push the, the, you know, the changes, let's say, to Chromium. And then they have to make sure that all the other major engines adopt it. And usually what happens is most of them will, but one won't for a while. And you won't be able to really use the greatest, latest and greatest features for a while until every single engine browser adopts it. So it becomes kind of a moot point when people bring up new features and you have to go through kind of like a a Webpack compiling thing where it'll compile back down to an older version of JavaScript that does support it. So there's a, there's a bunch of ways around it again. Um, but the fact that you have to deal with so many different variations, A, now we're talking, we were talking before about screen sizes, and then you also have to deal with different browsers. You have to make sure that all the code that you're writing is compatible across all these different things. And that's sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes when you're doing something specific is really, really difficult, um, especially when you're testing. So you're testing across, you know, many different instances, many different devices, many different browsers, many different screen sizes. Like think about that. If you're one person and a lot of these points will be pointing out to kind of like the one person web developer, not so much the teams, because obviously on a team, you can separate the responsibilities and mitigate a lot of these issues. But a lot of the times when you're a web designer and a web developer, and especially if you're listening to this podcast, you're probably kind of a solo contractor or something like that. And all this kind of rests on your shoulders. So it's important to be able to deal with it when you can only do so much with the amount of time and effort you have in a day. Well, there's also like, it's, there's also the angle of whether or not, like whether or not you're going to use a framework of some sort. So with all the different, so for, speaking specifically about CSS um, and layouts, 
you know, there's a bunch of vendor prefixes. Mike said, like Mike was saying there, a bunch of different functions in, let's say, even JavaScript that work differently, uh, a bunch of different properties, of course, that work differently or don't work at all in different browsers in terms of CSS. Like, there's a lot, there's a lot there. And that's sort of why also people start using things like Bootstrap and such, because Bootstrap kind of has those fallbacks as well as other, like all, a bunch of other similar, like, layout frameworks or whatever they call them. Uh, similar to Bootstrap, those those type of pro- those type of programs, those type of frameworks, they they have like the fallback where they have all the vendor prefixes there. You know, Bootstrap will tell you, hey, we're compatible to this version of IE or whatever it is, and so you know you're you're good. You just put in display, you know, whatever properties you need to put in, and it kind of handles all the vendor prefixes, all the little quirks. It does all that for you. Does all the clear fixes, whatever needs to happen. It just does it for you, and you don't need to deal with like remembering like oh is there a is there a moz prefix for mozilla firefox is there a webkit prefix for this for for uh for google chrome or whatever it is and and that, that's really important and that's sort of why also why teams will use things like bootstrap tailwind css those type of things exactly and on the javascript side there's a thing called babel which will allow you to write in the latest and greatest like es you know 2019 javascript uh, and it'll be able to compile down to all the different versions and then serve the correct version of JavaScript that the browser needs. So obviously the latest and greatest browsers will get the latest and greatest version. But if they're an old browser like Internet Explorer, it'll still get a working version of the code you write just in an older format. So there's plenty of stuff like that. And Babel's built into a lot of different infrastructures as well. So if you're doing like Vue or React, I think Babel is already built into it. So whenever you're writing that kind of code, it supports many, many different browsers. So again, there's there's 100% ways to elevate the issue of multiple browsers and multiple different environments, but you still kind of have to account for it. And there's edge cases where it doesn't work and you have to kind of solve it yourself. So having said that, uh, the next thing here is skill requirements. So... Being a solo web developer and a contractor, you kind of have to put on a lot of hats. And it's more than I would say a typical desk job and more than most jobs I would say in general. Because you need to know stuff like UI, UX development. You need to know like design, like web design stuff. You need to know programming. You need to know DevOps. You need to know customer relations. Uh, you need to You need to at least have knowledge of all these topics to be able to put a site from concept to final production stage. Otherwise you're not going to get there because if you can't, you know, if you can't communicate, you can't talk to the client, you're not going to get the requirements correctly. You're going to give a bad product to the client. He's not going to approve it. And that's the end of that chapter. If you don't have the UI UX knowledge, at least to a certain degree, you're not going to be able to create a website that people can use. You're going to create a janky looking monstrosity that you know we, we see on the web sometimes because not everyone has enough skills in ui ux because it's kind of like a very specialized topic um, that can be learned and sometimes you have to put a lot of effort into but either way like you're, you're going to have a monstrosity on your hands if you don't know programming you're not going to be able to put it all together if you don't know devops you're not going to be able to put the final product onto a server and have it served and, you know, hook up a DNS to it and buy a domain name and all that stuff that comes with DevOps. Now, all this stuff is kind of, it's kind of daunting when you say it all like that, like, like literally separate it all into, into separate things. But once you kind of, if you do separate it and you tackle them one at a time, uh, there is a scheme to follow and there are ways to do it where it's not overwhelming. Like you don't have to do everything at once is what I'm trying to say. It's better to kind of tackle one of these things at a time. So in the design phase, that's when you're doing the UI UX design. So you're not focusing on DevOps. You're not focusing on programming. You're just doing the UI UX. When you're in the programming stage, that's when you're just coding up. You're not really worrying about designing anything. You just want to get your the design already created on the screen. When you're doing DevOps, you're screw, like, who cares about the programming? You're only doing the, you know, spinning up a server or just putting stuff into a uh, FTP and linking some DNSs and there's guides for all of this. That's the main thing that I want to point out is like all of these things that I'm saying are hard, there are guides. And I'll talk about that in the next segment about how to kind of mitigate these issues. Uh, and there's there's certain things you can follow to help with that. Yeah, I will I will say that I will say that the skill the skills required can get pretty pretty ridiculous. And we've actually had a couple of people approach us and that's sort of why we actually made the episode stop learning, start coding, because we've had a couple of people that will 
you know, like to book learn stuff, basically, where they like to read through stuff or watch tutorials before they jump into the real world stuff, and they end up getting caught up in the fact that, oh, wait, there's like a, there's a server called Apache, and oh my god, there's a, there's a domain registrar, and there's a DNS, and then the DNS controls, like, the MX file, and then that's email, and like, I don't want to touch email, that's like the IT department's thing, but now I'm involved because I bought the, bought the name with the registrar, and, you know, the list really goes on. So at this point, it's, so it, it just, it kind of comes down to really having, having to just sort of jump in and try it at some point and eventually you'll just kind of sort it out in your own brain come up with your own formula and be able to kind of go through all of it without having an issue Mm -hmm. exactly and with that uh troubleshooting is also really difficult uh it could it can be really difficult i don't want to say it's really difficult all the time because sometimes it's really easy you just kind of open up the (coughs) inspect inspect element look at the console and there's an obvious glaring error and that's technically troubleshooting if you can see the error and know where it is that's a good troubleshooting technique but sometimes you'll have it where a something doesn't throw an error, but it's not acting correctly. B you're you're getting someone else's code and it's throwing a bunch of errors that you don't recognize. Uh, C there's there's many many different kinds of ways where troubleshooting can become really difficult. And we have an episode on troubleshooting on its own uh, on debugging. I highly recommend you listen to it because we kind of go through some techniques. But just just a quick overview. Uh, Inspect tools is your friend. On both Chrome and Firefox, they're really, really good. They tell you, like, they give you stack traces. They give you ways to do breakpoints. So breakpointing in a function that's problematic before the problem happens is a good way to see what's causing the problem. Uh, You can see what the current local variables are all at. You can see what... uh, what's not working like what what information isn't received by the problematic function that it needs to receive and then when you know that it becomes easier to kind of narrow down where you need to look in your code to fix it Um, that's a very general approach but i have used it many many times and it's worked a lot Uh, in terms of ui debugging and troubleshooting that does happen sometimes like especially when you're talking about screen sizes multiple browsers sometimes you're going to have jank in your ui and to troubleshoot that it's the same thing you open up your inspect tools uh look at your all your css properties and fiddle around with them like okay if display or if you know display flex one is not working uh maybe try two or try different justification justify instead of justify content center try you know uh, align item center or something like that it, it depends on what your problem is but there's many different ways where you can jank around in the inspect tools and kind of get an idea of where you need to head in your code and actually with that being said with in terms of a ui thing um sometimes you just don't you just don't know what you want out of a out of a ui so you don't know exactly how you want a content block and let's say you you make the content block with a bunch of properties and stuff obviously in css and you you build it out and then you're like damn i want this actually to be a little bit thinner i want this to be changed this 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 and this it could be a real pain so one of the things that i actually do instead of troubleshooting that way is i'll set up a really generic content box and then actually go into the inspect tools and create like by slowly editing and seeing it live create the content box i want by adding and removing and adjusting properties right there live in the inspect tools and then i will and then i'll like see what i want and then just copy that put it into the actual file make sure it works and then i move on i found that to be really helpful because oftentimes i'll have duplicate or redundant properties that are fighting each other things that are percentages and then something else that's something else that's like wrapping it that's that's an absolute width so then i can you know like i'm just not using that percentage and i found myself doing a lot of redundant weird functions whereas Whereas when I do this thing with the live editing, I find it to be way easier for troubleshooting my UI, and I actually end up troubleshooting much less. Okay, uh, and I completely agree with that. Like that's that's exactly how I kind of go about the UI troubleshooting as well. Um, but another thing, and we've kind of touched on this, is just having too many different technologies. So not only do you have multiple different browsers to worry about screen size and all that, you also have technologies that you have to kind of keep up with or use or adapt or like discard as well like knowing when to not use a technology is important so stuff that i'm talking about is like view all the different frameworks react uh all the different multi cross-platform stuff like cordova flutter and all that uh all the different ui frameworks like bootstrap tailwinds etc 
Um, there, there's many, many, there's just so many different technologies and there's more and more every day. Like we've had many episodes and we've talked a lot with Matt about how much is out there and how much more is coming, uh, that it kind of overwhelms you sometimes. You're like, well, why am I not learning this? If people are talking about it on the internet, I should be learning it. But what we, what you know, and what we've talked about many times on the podcast is that you don't, you can't learn every technology. The most important thing you can do is learn the base that the, that the technologies are built on and therefore you know how the technology works. So if you know JavaScript, you know how Vue.js works. And if you know CSS, you know how Tailwinds and Bootstrap works and stuff like that. And it just makes it easier that if you ever do need to use a, to use one to help you, because a lot of these frameworks and uh, libraries, they really do help uh, you with your coding and they, they make it so that you don't have to know everything on your own and you can do a lot of things uh, that would be redundant in in just using the generic uh, or the, the base coding languages, if they will help you, uh, you can pick them up really quickly if you know the base technology, if you know like the, the language that they're built on. And especially when you've switched between a couple, um, some of the practice that I do is kind of like, you know, if I stagment in view, I'll go and look at like React for a little bit just to make sure that I can switch at some point if I need to. Or Svelte, which is a newer uh, UI framework that's co- that's come out, reactive framework. Um, I also look at that sometimes and see if I can spin up like a quick project in it. And the more you do that, the easier it becomes to switch and the less intimidating all these new technologies become. Because instead of being intimidating, they become more of a tool in your arsenal that you can you know, grab when you need it instead of, you know, panicking that a new one came out and I have to learn it at this very instant. Yeah, that that's a really good point, too, is that I think a lot of people will get, especially since this is a tech field, a lot of people will get really into ensuring that they, or the, they get really into, like, reading about the latest tech, and then they get all tied up in the fact that, hey, like, you know, this latest framework came out or oh, I'm using Bootstrap, but Tailwind CSS is taking off. Like, man, I really need to drop Bootstrap right now and use this. Or, oh, I was using, you know, Vanilla JS for years, and then I changed to jQuery. But now Vanilla JS is hot again. Like, I need to drop jQuery. jQuery's dead. I just, I find that, like, it's difficult to kind of see through the noise of whether or not you should be using something like jQuery, whether or not you should be using something like Tailwind versus Bootstrap, whether or not you should be using something like Vanilla CSS. It's really hard to see through that noise, and really what it kind of comes down to is whatever you know, whatever is still working, and whatever will continue to work is sort of it. You know, you can absolutely use WordPress right now and continue using it for years, whereas a lot of web devs have dropped it in the past few years and have gone over to things like Vue.js and that type of thing. Whereas there's, I'm sure, it's the opposite as well. There's a bunch of guys that are making a bunch of custom websites that weren't what we're not using we were not using WordPress at all. They were using probably a custom CMS and maybe bootstrap or something. And then they'll switch right back on over to WordPress because they just realize, wow, I need to access this library of plugins. And so it's just, it's a lot of noise and that's really the difficult part of it. Yeah, exactly. And I think Matt will agree with this, with me on this. Uh, This is, this next one is probably the hardest for a web developer. Um, and it's probably hard for a lot of other businesses, but having to deal with clients and there's multiple different things in a client, like in a, you know, business relationship that you can have with a client. There's multiple different issues that can arise. Sometimes it's perfect. Like sometimes you have a client and it's great, but a lot of the time, even if you have a really good relationship with the client, there's going to be some friction. There's going to be some issues, uh, whether it be like, maybe the, the client's really awesome and gives you all the information you need and is willing to work with you and all that. But the money situation is tight and that transfer of money and like agreeing on the right price, that's kind of a trouble, a troubling issue. Sometimes you'll have an issue where like the money situation is fine, but they, the demand from you is so high that it's almost not worth the money. And then you'll have issues where, uh, the money's good. The, the, what they demand is fine, but they're not willing to communicate with you. So you're stuck sitting there and doing nothing. Uh, whereas you could be, you know, finishing their website and delivering on your promises where, but they're holding you up because they're not sending you the material. So there's a lot of situations where honestly, it's really difficult to deal with clients and it's not always their fault. It's not always your fault. It's just the nature of, you know, human to human relations, especially when it comes to a non-priority project, which a lot of websites are 
for people that have small businesses, especially like if it's a small business that's doing like laying concrete or something or, you know, bricklaying, their priority is to go out on the site and lay bricks, like get more clients to lay bricks and talk to their clients that they already have to lay more brick. Uh, they're, yes, they want the site up so that they can get more clients in the future, but they don't see it as an immediate impact. So they kind of put you on the back burner. So you're stuck sitting there and waiting for them to respond to you while they're out there laying bricks. So it's the nature of the kind of situation that you're in, obviously. And again, you can have situations where you're both on the same page, where you're both see this as a priority. You agree to terms. They send you the information. Those, those ty- types of clients and client relations are amazing. But they're pretty rare and far and few in between. Um, a lot of the times, clients will kind of give you false urgency as well. Uh, and we've talked about this on the podcast. But like, what, a false urgency is essentially they get they contact you, say this is an emergency. There's you know we need to get a site up. We need to like the government's on our ass or something like that. We've had that many times. Mac can attest where like they we get a response. The government's on our ass. We need to get the site up. And we're like, okay, perfect. We have some time right now. Let's let's work out an agreement. Let's get everything up. And you have a good week of communications where you get all the information you need uh, to at least start the project. And then you're like, okay, well, we're going to need information A, B, and C from you next week or something like that. And then we can finish the project by, you know, week two or week three. And everyone agrees and everyone's excited and happy. And, you know, they've they've contacted you and they want this done. But all of a sudden, week, week two rolls around and you nothing from them. And you're like, okay, well, we need to get this done for week three because that's your deadline. We need to know information. And you contact them and you say this to them, uh, whether it be by phone or by email, like you do maybe multiple different things. You don't want to bother them too much, but you you clearly state it to them that if you don't get us this information, we can't finish your site. You, you won't meet the deadline. And then week three rolls around and your project is due on Friday. Uh, your, your website is due on Friday and they reach out to you Thursday and start complaining that the project's not done and what's going on. And that's happened to us several times. I don't know how many, like a couple it, times. Like it's almost expected at this point. <laughs> yeah, like we're, we're waiting for it to happen. And no, no amount of like clauses in the contract, no amount of like conversations, like generic conversations, emails, like not, no amount of that has ever fully solved that issue. A lot of the time it'll be like we need this done ASAP and we'll, we'll be like we can't do it or whatever and they'll – and we'll explain to them why and they'll understand. They'll be like, okay, well, we, we should have given you the information sooner and et cetera, et cetera. But it's still not the most ideal situation because nor, you're not happy and they're not happy. Like you never want to be in a situation where both of you are unhappy. Like that's that's the worst case scenario. Like you, you, want, you want to find something in between. And unfortunately, it's just as much as you want to try, it's just not possible to avoid to completely avoid this kind of problem with a client. So you kind of have to just learn how to deal with it the best you can. Um, and move forward. And maybe we're not the best at dealing with it yet, but we're definitely moving forward. Like we definitely know, know about it. We try to conquer it as much as we can. And when it comes up, we try to deal with it as best we can, like for the client and for ourselves. Like we can't just think about the client sometimes because they're not the only ones that we're dealing with. There's other people that are maybe doing the same thing at the same time. And it's, it's difficult. So that's definitely a difficult situation. The other thing that, uh, that's really tough with a client relationship is that it's easy attitude. So a lot of the times a client will reach out to you and they'll maybe you've already had a website with them and they're like, well, we need to just add a really quick feature. We can, can we get a uh, calendar up on our site? Um, we just need to show a bunch of the stuff that we're doing on the calendar and it should, it should be easy, right? Like that should be an easy, an easy ask. Like it's just the calendar. I mean, Google calendar is, is around. Can you just like copy paste that in? And you're like, well, it's not easy. Like you have to, you're going into the situation where you have to explain to them and convince them because in their heads, it's easy. There's, there's not much you can do about it. And it's not up to them. It's not like, there's no knock on them for thinking it's easy because the web, the web makes it feel like it is easy. So it's up to you to convince them that it's not easy and what you need from them and what, how much time and, you know, resources you will need to complete it. That's on you as a developer, as a business owner, as a contractor to be able to convince your client that something is not as easy as they think in their head it is. And again, I I don't have any, I don't think it's any problem of the client to think it's easy, to be honest, because again, they they don't have any other frame of reference. It's really on you to prove to prove to them that it's not. It's only really a problem when, when we, and we experience this where you say it's not easy and you give the reason in you know with with the least amount of technical terms as you can 
and then you kind of get pushed back on that and be like, well, these other sites have it. And it's like, well, that's correct, but like, like it, it, it's one of those things where I think, I think what it comes off as, and this is sort of a problem just in terms of human communication, I think what it comes off as is you've already built the site for them. They want to add a feature. You sound like you're just done with the project and you don't want to spend time doing it. Or you come across as a person that isn't really that interested in the project and you're just finding problems. Because, you know, that that happens in a lot with a lot of service staff to customers, of course. But in reality, it, it isn't that. But I think it, it comes across as that. And so then they'll push and be like, no, like, I assure you, it's easy. This has been done before. But in reality, it's usually something like, oh, we have a $200 budget for this. And you're like, well, I mean, it's going to be a grand or more to add this feature. You know, what do you, you know, what are we thinking here? And they're like, well, that's outrageous. Like this already exists somewhere. And sometimes it's not about the complexity of like the thought. It's not like as if you're writing the next algorithm that determines, I don't know, like the, like facial recognition, but it, it, it comes down to the amount of time it's going to take to set stuff up or the amount of time it's going to take to just make something that's easy. Like technically speaking, a podcast app is simple in its in its basic structure. It reads RSS feeds, it takes that information, it downloads certain pieces of that information, it plays some of that information, it displays some of that information, but all that information comes from an RSS feed that, in general, isn't hosted on that podcast app, or on that even on that podcast platform, with some, obviously, some exceptions in there. So it's easy in 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 thought, but you wouldn't be able to make a full podcast app like tonight, a full one that would like surpass Pocket Cast or something. That ain't just ain't gonna happen. No. And as soon as you start thinking about it more, like you start thinking about authentication, like yes, there's a few, few things that are easy there. There's a few things that are hard there. You start thinking about where you're gonna host the data, where you're gonna store all the files, where you're gonna store like the downloaded episodes, stuff like there's. It just becomes more and more complex as you break it down. When you think about it as one big thing, you're like, okay, that's fine. That's that's something that can be done. But as you, when you're actually tackling a project, you have to break it down into smaller things, and that's when it becomes doable but the complexity is more evident and that's maybe how you need to explain to your clients why it's just it's not easy when when they say it to you but with that um i'm just going to move on to the next segment here that was there, there's obviously plenty of other stuff in web development that's very difficult uh but Again, it's it is really relative to the people that are in the industry, like what you're doing currently, and these are currently the pain points for us right now. Uh, among others, we we don't want to bore you to death with what's really difficult. I want to kind of move on to why it's not so bad. I don't want to sc- only scare you. I want to show you that web development is a good field to go into. Uh, whether you want to be a contractor, whether you want to be you know work in an agency or work in a company or work whatever, whatever, however you want to handle your web development career. Um, and the first point here is almost every problem that I've mentioned and that co- ha- that can come up for you during a project already has a solution because of how expansive the field has been and how many years it's been around. And uh, also one of my other points is that the de- developers are very much a good community to be in because they're very f- f- out – like they're very um, – helpful people so they like to post answers they like to you know post blogs about how they solve a certain situation and all that is very searchable because they're not only people that know how to you know write and post answers but they know how to make it so that stuff is more searchable because they they're the ones that are kind of you know working with the algorithms for search so searching for an issue is a very good skill to have and being able to solve any issue with a you know a couple Google searches is a very realistic thing in web development, and that's a very big plus in my eyes. Now, whether you can get to the right answer really quickly, that's a different thing, and it requires skills to be able to search correctly and pick the right answer. But again, it's something that you can definitely build, and something that practice does make make it easier over and over again. So, I would say that's kind of an attestment too. The amount of different technologies out there as well. The very fact that you can, you know, a lot, a lot of the time it comes down to a UI hack where you're just sort of like displaying all the information because let's say you, for whatever reason you wanted to grab it individually, but you have to grab it all at once. So you kind of do like a UI thing where you just hide a bunch of stuff and preload stuff and then just have it ready. The little things like that where there's like these little weird intricacies that we've done on jobs where like I've did this weird thing one time where it wouldn't, I couldn't post an embedded 
an embedded link into Webflow. And so what I did was I made an invisible text area and you take the text that is from like, so someone in the CMS pastes the embed link and it takes that embed link, puts it into an invisible text area, which like, I want to say transcode, but that's the wrong word, but I can't think of the right thing now, but it like prepares the link so that it's ready, so it's DOM ready, so it's readable by the DOM. And then it literally just takes that and throws it into the page again, like in an element, and then, then it's ready to rock. And that's just weird, but that's a, that's a solution that works and it works like flawlessly. Yeah, exactly. So there's, there's so many little things like that. And yeah, like you said, it was a testament to how many different frameworks and stuff are out there, but it's, it's interesting that, uh, even with these frameworks that we've never heard of, you have a random issue with them and you type it into Google, you're going to see someone that's had that same issue as you and has a kind of a solution for it. Now, there are very specific issues sometimes where, um, you won't find a direct solution. But a lot of the time you'll be able to, once you get better at it, you'll be able to know what to search for even when a solution isn't available that has like some sort of relevance to your problem and you can kind of apply the same pattern or something like that to your problem. And usually you can get there with it or just kind of knowing the language will help you structure your queries and stuff like that. So that's a big part of of web development in my eyes and people that... um a lot of people, when they go and they do that, they search, like, you know, they Google every little problem. They have, uh, you know, confidence issues. They think that they don't know anything. But in, in my eyes, that's definitely a huge part of the job is to know how to search and know how to make your job more streamlined. Cause there's no point in recreating the wheel when it already exists. Like, if you have an issue, maybe you can solve it by, with knowledge of the language and stuff like that and just going at it and looking at the documentation and figuring it out but why why do you want to waste that time when you can just go and see what other people have done and it it just it's it's a it's good common sense to be able to use your time efficiently 100 percent. yeah now with that uh the other thing that i think personally is that being good at web development and having a good portfolio having good references gives you very good job security in the future because there's even though there's the, you know a lot of web developers out there and stuff like that, there's just a lot of jobs that require good web developers. And they're constantly popping up. Like the web is constantly growing, right, in its capabilities. Different industries are constantly being linked into the web and being like, oh, we can make money on this. Uh, but where yesterday we didn't and stuff like that. So it's constantly evolving uh, and the industry is in need of better developers and people that are very passionate about the subject, are willing to help the community and stuff like that. And being that kind of person, I think gives you really good job security and the salaries that web developers make are also not bad. So it's a good option for people in the future, in my opinion. I don't think it's going anywhere, if that makes sense. Like, I don't think it's one of those jobs that's going to get cut by automation anytime soon. Maybe, you know, maybe it will at 50, 100 years down the line, but anything can. So I, I think it's a pretty safe bet. Now, the other thing is, is that some people like challenges and there's a lot of challenges. Like I was saying in the previous segment, there's a lot of challenges in web development and it can make a job interesting. Like if you're interested in something that will make you think every day and make you like learn a new skill and go in and learn a new technology and talk to different people sometimes and stuff like that, then web development, I think, is definitely for you and and definitely something you should continue to pursue uh, because I don't think that's ever going to change or at least anytime soon. Like, I don't think any it's ever going to stabilize and be like, this is the web and we're never going to add anything to it. No, I think like, we're not anywhere close to that yet. So the learning aspect of it is huge. Um, now, there are certain situations where if like you get into an agency that only does WordPress and only uses three different templates where you can get kind of stagnant and it can get kind of boring. So... Yes, there are situations where you're not going to have a challenge, but you it's up to you to put yourself in a situation where you are. So it's kind of on your shoulders and there's plenty of situations where you are do have challenges. Any startup you go to, you're going to you're going to be learning a lot, trust me. You're going to learn a lot and quickly and <laughs> it's going to be it, it might be overwhelming, but the, in the end you're going to feel really accomplished with what you've created and what you've helped build and stuff like that. So that's a huge thing with web development. Whereas with like not to not to diss it or anything, but if you're, you know, a factory worker and you're putting uh, a screw in and a couple of different things and all the time that's needed in society. But it's just, if you're not the type of person that would enjoy that, or maybe not the type of person that uh, just needs that, because some people obviously need those jobs and that's fine. Um, then it's, it's a good kind of path to keep going down or go down all, all along. 
So the other thing uh, is you don't have to really go to school for it. Like you can. There are plenty of programs. You can take software engineering. You can take computer science. You can take some web development courses in colleges and stuff like that. But realistically, if you're sitting there in your room, there's plenty of free online resources, whether it be YouTube tutorials, whether it be courses on Udemy, whether it be Coursera. And if they're not free, there could be like, you know, 12 bucks, 15 bucks. But you can find some very affordable courses that will give you very good, relevant knowledge that you can immediately apply to like a freelance position or like try to freelance somewhere and immediately use the knowledge that you gained to generate income. So there's not too many jobs out there that allow you to do that. Um, and web development is, in my opinion, definitely one of those. So you can you can sit down in your off time in like if you're a high school student, you can sit down after school, learn the 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 basics, learn, go, go through, do some projects on your own and try to do some freelancing jobs. And I think you can succeed doing that. There's not too many jobs out there again that I think that applies to. It's really, I think it's, I think that's because it's so, and this isn't a word, but so giggable, if that makes sense. Some, like some guy who isn't, isn't tech, tech savvy gets, gets his one press, one click WordPress install working on Bluehost or whatever. And he gets it all working. And then he's like, damn, I really wanted a share menu here. And I really don't understand why this plugin isn't working. What do I do? And so that type of person may, may very well be your first type of client on a freelancer site or something like that, where you'll kind of go into these websites. You're going to go into that website and that guy will ask like, Hey, I, you know, for 50 bucks, I need someone to help me fix this share menu. I really don't know what's going on there. You know, help me. And that's, that's totally different than most other industries where it would be like, Hey, I need you to completely redo this car. Or, hey, I need you to do all this. It's, it's, it's really bite-sized and, or, or it can be really big too. It's, it really is versatile in that way. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And uh, the last thing here is um, kind of on a different spectrum, but if you're not one of those people that want to tackle really you know, difficult problems all the time, there is a way for you to not do that. And like, like I was saying before, agencies and different kind like larger companies, you can find jobs that are more specialized that'll make you kind of an expert in one field. And if that's kind of your mindset and you want to be, you know, I want to only focus on PHP or I want to only focus on JavaScript, it's not something I would recommend, but it's something that's definitely available for you. Uh, if you, if you're, if you look hard enough and, that I think the flexibility of the web development industry and web programming industry in general is what makes it so attractive to all, so many different kinds and kinds of people out there. Um, and it, it's a huge positive of the industry. I, I like the fact that we can bring in people that aren't all the same mindset. You know what I mean? Like they're not all like, oh, I only want challenges. Because when you bring in people in different mindsets, you can create something really interesting because if you have you know someone that's only interested in javascript he can find the intricacies of javascript that you would never even think of because you're thinking about all the different other technologies so you can use him as a resource to help you succeed in all the other fields because you can use his solutions to issues that he's written on stack overflow or something like that uh, to continue your work in ui ux development and you don't have to waste your time finding those issues yourself so there's a lot of little things like that in web development that always surprise me. And like I've been in the industry not that long, but it's been probably five years now or something like that. And I'm constantly surprised by the like the different people that are in it and how how everyone approaches it differently. Like some people are super social. Some people aren't social. Some people want to just read advice. Some people want to write advice. Like there's just so many different aspects of it. So it's interesting. But with that, I don't know, Matt, if you want to add anything to the positives or you want to move on to sponsor and uh, web news, that's up to you. You go ahead. Uh, yeah, so I think I'll just jump on to the sponsor uh, here before I start coughing really bad because I'm, I'm due for another dosage of medication soon um, so uh, so that I not, don't end up dead tomorrow morning. So uh, just to bring that back up. So uh, this episode is sponsored by the one membership by Template Monster, your one membership, or one membership, excuse me, your ultimate web development kit. This includes WordPress and CMS themes, uh, e-commerce themes, powerful plugins, uh, presentation templates, diverse graphics, unlimited installations, 24-7 technical support, and one year free hosting. You can use our link, which is tinyurl.com slash HTML, the things with our unique promo code to receive 10% off. That code is HTML. All the things 10. We receive a monetary kickback for any purchases made using our link and promo code. And of course, this link and uh, the promo code will be 
available in written form on our show notes. And I have one really quick question for Mike. What is clicking on your end? Something has just been continually clicking at a very like steady rate. Like click, 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 click. Is it your chair or are you clicking the mouse? No, 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 no. It's a, I'm not. I'm, it, it's just a mouse clicking in the other room. Oh, okay. That's yeah. a loud mouse click. Okay. Well, anyway. Yeah. Um, it's, not, it's not being picked up on the audacity thing. All right. Well, that's good then. Okay. Well, anyway, uh, I just I just heard it continually. But anyway, so web news, um, just purely conversational. Uh, what happened to progressive web apps or PWAs? So if you're a longtime listener of the show, you know that We've been, we've, you know, praised PWAs, talked about them, made one in a beta form, et cetera, et cetera. Like PWAs are sort of a big part of our learning journey with web development and something we were kind of really looking forward to. Now, PWAs were supposed to sort of be this revolutionary thing where you would make your web app and it would be progressive in such a way where you could easily put it onto a phone. You could easily put it onto the Microsoft Store for Windows 10. You could easily install it uh, onto your phone from like an actual website, etc., etc. Now, a couple of things haven't changed. Um, I still see the add this app to your home screen thing, although Mike doesn't seem to when you go to certain pages. Uh, I think you mentioned you, you hadn't seen it in a while. I actually seen it the other day. I will say I've, I am seeing it less, but I don't know whether that's just because there's not as many PWAs. Uh, one thing I saw that was exciting that I completely forgot about was the fact that uh, when you go to uh, a progressive web app on Chrome, or at least it did work, uh, when you went there in your top, in your like your URL, your Omni box or whatever, your URL box at the top, on the right-hand side beside the beside the favorites button, there was a little like plus, in, like plus install icon. And I use that actually on my, for messages, for Android messages, for text messaging on my uh, my desktop. And then I tried to use it on my tablet and that button never showed up. And I tried to use it on my laptop, and the button never showed up. So I don't know what happened. Um, I think I could still add it to the home screen, but it kind of seems like that PWA, like, incentivized, like, clearly that plus sign, which is small to begin with, but that plus sign is sort of like an invitation, like, hey, I'm an app, install me, kind of thing. Uh, the Chromium version of Edge, of Microsoft Edge, uh, it has, you can install websites as uh, as apps as well. But it's kind of buried in a menu. Like, it's not super complex or anything. It's not, you know, really deep in there. But it's certainly, you know, one click. And so, like, what's going on here? And and uh, I'll let Mike answer, but one of the things that I'm noticing here is we know when there's, like, a, an exciting piece of tech or just a, a piece of tech that people get excited about. There's a dedicated community. And they get all fired up about it, but then the news starts to kind of fail and, it you know, it's not... It's not getting the buzz that it once was. Well, sadly, I think that's where we're at with PWAs. And what that also means, sadly, is that I kind of think they're dead in the water. Not necessarily that the technology is going to disappear. And this is all my opinion, to be clear. Not necessarily that it's all going to disappear. But it's the fact that they aren't creating a buzz that the consumer can get behind because a consumer probably doesn't even know what a PWA is in general. And because the consumers aren't fired up about it, agencies and bigger companies that hire app developers aren't super fired up about PWAs more than likely either. So will they still be around? Probably. But sort of in the Cordova sense where I don't see excitement about Cordova, it's just a tool you can use. That's sort of where I see PWAs. And to be honest, I would say Cordova, Apache Cordova is more mature. And I would see that PWAs are going to maybe fail even, fail or fall even further than that. Because you see these big initiatives by companies like Microsoft saying, we're going to add PWAs to our Microsoft store. And you see these things like Apple was like the one that kind of pioneered their popularity in a way. And then they just sort of abandoned it. And it, it you know, you can add things to the home screen, but it still isn't. You know, it's just still not there. And so that's 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 sort of my question is you know, where where what happened to PWAs? Like is this uh is this still is it because we're in this developer circle and we're we were excited about it and then it kinda petered away? Like I don't see anything about them. I don't I don't hear anyone freaking out about them. 
that install button's gone. Like, I don't know whether that's because I, in, like, something as simple as I installed it on my desktop and I'm using the same Google account, and so it detects it and thinks I already have it installed, not realizing there's multiple devices there. Like, maybe that's not a system that's... But, like, regardless, like, what is... And, and actually, and one other thing, too. I don't think it's still... I still don't think it's clear to people that when they get that, especially on Android Chrome, like, the add to home screen button... When it pops up, that little pop-up thing, I don't think they realize that's an app. I think they think it's just like a favorites bookmark click thing. So, okay. Let me unpack this a little bit. And there's a lot to unpack. Um, so I think you're right in a lot of senses, in, in a lot of the sense. So it's the consumers that are just not getting it. And that's why in a consumer aspect, I don't think PWAs are ever going to take off. Like, I think it, it is dead in the water in a consumer aspect mm. because I don't see like they tried with the like the little, you know, add to home screen thing and the little pop up and stuff. They tried, but not everyone adopted it and not everyone by not everyone. I mean, Apple, you cannot on Apple, you cannot pop up a little thing asking people to download to their home screen. Yep. So you, on Apple, you have to go add to home screen from the menu, which is buried in a menu. Yeah. So it's never going to happen. No one, no user is ever going to do it unless like they're, someone tells them to do it or something like that. And that's where I want to get to um, is where PWAs kind of still work is in business environments. So in a large corporation, if they need an application quickly that like shows their company's manual where people can search in the company manual, uh, maybe submit some tickets. You know, you know what I mean. Like a company, a, a company app, company wide application, like something that's on their intranet, intranet stuff, or maybe it's outranet, but uh, like internet, but it's uh, just very specific to the company. What they can do is literally send a document saying, "Hey, just go onto your iPad, go onto your iPhone, click here, click there, and download it, and then it'll be an offline kind of application that you can use as a knowledge base, etc." And in that sense, PWAs, I think, are doing well because I have seen that a few times, start, like going around to different companies, talking to different companies, uh, because it's just so fast to build them. Like it's a lot faster. You need a, a smaller team. It works across devices, et cetera, et cetera. There's so many reasons why PWAs are good. I think in the consumer market, they've lost and there's no, there was never real reason for a consumer to download a PWA. Um, yes, it works offline. So in some cases, that's kind of cool. Uh, yes, you're making less requests, but who cares? Like a user doesn't care. Like they don't, they don't, they don't get that. Yeah. They don't get it. Yeah. If they're offline, they're like, I'm not using my phone in general. So they don't like, they don't care. And I think that's fine. I think if PWA stay where they are right now, where they're just kind of aimed towards developers and business administrators and stuff like that, I think that that's an okay place to be for, for a PWA. I don't think that's a failure in the platform. Um, maybe they were they wanted it to be something bigger, but in my eyes, that is big enough for it to be a big impact because a lot of our work, like web developers' work and programmers' work, is for companies, like is for those intranet apps or internet apps for the company's internal use. It is a lot of the work out there is that, and if we can kind of move most of that over to PWAs, then that you know. It cuts some jobs off for iOS and Android developers, but it opens up a lot, of, a lot of other opportunities for those people to go in and kind of make their native applications better and stuff like that for the the actual consumers. Um, yeah, like I, IT ticketing software, I could see benefiting a lot rather than, rather than downloading what's usually a limited app in comparison to the desktop experience. You just basically have a responsive desktop experience that is offline if you add it to your home screen. That's it. So I, I think that's where that's where it thrives. And that's why, in my opinion, the browsers have stopped prompting you so often for it because they saw in their in their own statistics, they saw no one clicking on it. Like no one cares about that little plus that appears in the URL bar. Like That doesn't matter. Like no one when they're looking at a site for like news about whatever, they just want to look at that site about news. They don't want to download it and look at like click on a different thing on their desktop to look at the same site when they can just be like, you know, in a tab on their browser. It doesn't make sense. Even though from a development standpoint, like in the background, they're like the developers want them to click on that because 
it elevates some of the load on their servers and it makes their experience better. Everything's faster because it's local stuff like that. there is a lot of advantages, but again, the user doesn't care. Like they have good internet usually. And okay. The other thing is, is that in developing countries where internet isn't as good, I can see PWAs do a lot better as well, where like companies might push them more. Like, so in India or Africa, stuff like that, I can see PWAs being a lot bigger because a, you have a lower barrier to entry for the developers making them. So you can make apps a lot faster and cheaper. And B, you can kind of use better wording inside the application to prompt people to download them as a PWA. And then people can use use the app offline and stuff like that. So I can see it working in certain specialized places, but as a general consumer market in Canada, North America, like in general, in a in a good internet environment, I don't see them. I I don't see them going anywhere from where they are. I don't think they're going to become the next big thing either. From a Cordova perspective, Cordova is still pretty popular as far as I understand it. I've been I've been using it for a long time, and I've been on a lot of forums talking to people that still use it. And there's just there's just not still, buzz about it. It's not like but there isn't. It's no, but, it's no but, like crazy it, buzz. Like oh my god, like this is in the. But a consumer guys. will never know, right? Like a consumer when they click on an app, they don't know it's Cordova. Yeah, yeah. So the buzz, the buzz isn't relevant to the consumer on the developer side. There isn't. You're right. It's it's more like it's it's gone to like the jQuery and WordPress realm of like you know people don't talk about it because it's old, but people still use it just like they use WordPress and jQuery. So it's it's in that it's in that section in my opinion. That's kind of where it is, and that I I think that's what happened to PWAs. That's a really good point. I think that it, I don't think it should have included the consumer at all. I think the the benefit of Cordova is that it is a tool that was advertised to developers, you know, for a specific purpose of having a website be made into an app in a very particular way. You know, there's little there's like you know specific ways that you work with Cordova, but PWAs involve the consumer. It involved the consumer in that it tried to add a distribution system that just didn't make any sense. On a desktop, we are sort of trained to go to the browser and do most of our stuff in the browser or have a particular app for stuff. Like, I, I would argue that a lot of people would go to Netflix on the actual website versus the, the Windows 10 app. Yes. You know, on the desktop, you're sort of trained more often than not to use the, the, or use the browser. Whereas on a phone, you're trained to use an app more often than not. But you're trained to go to you're trained to use a app store to find and then download your app. You're not trained to go to the browser to download your app. And also, the PWAs were never in a never a normal, or at least not a, not not in my experience, in a normal download way. So on the PC, you know, if we need a specific application, we'll go use our browser, go to the website, hit a big download button. We don't use this click on, you know, add to my home screen. It's like what? Like that's that's a very mobile thing. I would say that a lot of us would prefer to either use the Microsoft Store, although that's not all that popular, you know. Or, but like realistically, like I know you're shaking your head there, Mike, but like realistically, if it was filled with a bunch of PWAs, like I have a bunch of different apps from the from the Microsoft Store. Like I have the iTunes app, I have the Plex app, uh, which I actually think might not be from there anymore, but um, I have the. Like I, like, I have apps. Like, if the apps are in there, I usually grab them from there. But I'm certainly not browsing that thing every day. And I would say that the issue is is that you it involves the consumer where it's like, hey, everybody, please use your browser more. And then, you know, then your browser stuff can be more like an app. What it should, what a PWA really should be is like Cordova. People should be focusing on the fact that it's like, hey, we can have this offline functionality of a full website. Let's make it so that it, it packages just like an app and then goes into the app store goes into the Google Play Store, goes into the various app markets out there. And then and then it's invisible to the consumer. The consumer doesn't get it, but the developers see the benefit of like, damn, we have a website, all we do was friggin' package it, added a manifest file or whatever the process was, and then we're good to go. And now we can just update the website itself. We don't update the app unless there's something very specific about the container. You know, there's less app updates that are app updates. It's more like cloud updates. You know, you'll notice that in games now, video games now, where... If, if you're playing, a lot of the time there's these big updates, but sometimes you'll notice an update comes out without an update actually being pushed, and that's because it's done in the cloud. And that's kind of how the app, the app updates would be handled then, right? 
is you'd be like, damn, this is a new interface, but I actually didn't download anything, an update from my app store. The app is still quote unquote version one or whatever, but this is a brand new interface. Like this is fantastic. And it just loads it up, right? It's just ready to go. And so I think that's where, I think that's the, I think you're right in that aspect where it's going to fall within a very particular subset, probably in the intranet game or very particularly with like teams of people, like with IT teams and stuff like that. And I would say that it's it's lost on the fact that for some reason they try to reinvent the the distribution of, excuse me, I'm dying again. The They try to reinvent the distribution of apps. They did not, mm-hmm. they, and, and in reality, what they should have did was they should have reinvented the distribution of apps for the developer and keep the consumer out of it. You're not going to get your consumer out of the App Store. The App Store makes Apple too much money. Yeah, I, I agree. The, the only caveat to that is I don't mind people trying new things and seeing what sticks. Like, obviously, this didn't stick, but who knows if in the future they try something else and maybe we do get, a you know, a variation to the App Store. Because it would be nice to have different options. But regardless, I think they're still going to, like, PWAs are still going to be around for a while uh, in, in the form that they're at. I don't think they're going to, necessarily get much better if that's if that makes sense but uh yeah that's that's kind of where my thought is at yeah i would agree like i i agree with your thing about trying things thing like with my idea of how apps should be put into an app store i would actually argue that that the add to home screen button would still be valid a valid distribution method or the little install button but in reality you also need that app store entry and it just isn't it just isn't there um, I think that's the end of my, uh, available breath in my lungs, to be blunt. Um, so, uh, unless you have anything else to add, Mike, I know that's, that's a real sad way to end the episode. I'm running out of breath in my lungs, boys, like, but anyway. That's it. Yeah. Uh. I mean, if the episode is up, that means you're still alive, so it's okay. If the, yeah, if the, yeah, because, all right, because I gotta edit it after this. It's more than likely gonna be late, because I'm probably just going to lay in my bed for eight hours, and not sleep, and then just get out of bed again, so. So that's good. Anyway, um, unless you have anything else to add, Mike, I'm going to run the old conclusion here. Runner up. Um, well, it's going to probably be slower than usual. So, uh, thank you for listening, and make sure you don't miss an episode by subscribing on the platform of your choice. You can follow us on the socials via at HTML all the things that's on Facebook and Instagram. You can also follow us on Twitter, which is at HTML everything. We're on Medium and we're on uh, GitHub, and uh, remember we're also on Patreon. That's Patreon.com/slash/HTML all the things. Check out the tiers and give that a go. And many thanks, and one sec, this is a list, so I'm going to have to breathe for a sec. <coughs> Get that out of me. <clears throat> many thanks, excuse me, to our $3 tier patrons, John from RabbitWorks JavaScript. You can find him at youtube.com slash RabbitWorks JavaScript. Garrick from Local Path Computing and Web Design. Find him at localpathcomputing.com. Craig, a.k.a. Cosworth. Ryan Gatchel from Blue Black Digital. Find him at blueblackdigital.com. Chris from Selfmade Web Designer, find him at selfmadewebdesigner.com. Tim from The Web Hacker, find him at thewebhacker.com. And DL Ford from dlford.io. Feel free to leave a comment or a review on the platform you're listening to this on. And we are signing off. Possibly for the last time. But Michael will be here. Hopefully. Yeah.